Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is going to be episode number 162, another in the classic Spotlight series, this one on Octavio Paz. I've been wanting to do this for a while, and I normally say that because it's true. I always have a, a list and an agenda, and I try to um, put together the shows sometimes by, by a, you know, a physical outline because it's, it's necessary on these type of shows. You really just can't go even off of your recollection or, or memories and put together a show in a half an hour that, that sounds like, you know, any kind of useful uh, information or, or direct or, or direction. So, and, and it was really important in this particular case because with, uh, with pause, he's a very complicated uh, writer and, and figure on, on many different levels Unlike a lot of writers, where you can, you can narrow down a certain approach or even a, a project or two that people are aware of. With Paz, it's it's just much more different than that, and and much more subtle. Mainly because, ironically, he has such a diverse amount of, of material out there. Also, because even though he's well known in the artistic communities, he's not so well known in your average community or your average household. Mainly because he wrote in Spanish, and and many of his works got interpreted you know, or rather, and translated into English or other languages later on, you know, in some cases, decades later. Uh, even though he is a Nobel Prize winner, it's still uh, not uh, as well known as, as many other writers. Um, so we'll talk about that as well. All right, so what I'm going to do here is, I found that the best thing to do under these circumstances really is to help break down the show into three pieces uh, remember, this is a man with a, a tremendous amount of, of work over the decades of his writing and traveling, and there's no way to cover them all, and I really don't want to actually cover them all. I just cover what's necessary to really get the point across about you know who he was, why his work is so important, even to this day, and, and maybe it's somebody that we can possibly look up ourselves and, and try to gain or learn something from, because there's a lot to learn from this man. All right, so I'm going to do it in three parts. Uh, we'll first talk about the man, then we'll talk about the artist, and then after that we'll talk about the you know the meaning as much as we can about what um, Paz was trying to do, uh, what he did teach, and what can still be relevant today. Not everything is going to be relevant, but there is a lot that that there is, and and definitely uh, we're going to talk about that. Now, he was born. Uh, to a, a pretty prominent political family in, in Mexico uh, in uh, 1914 in Mexico City. Uh, he was born uh, Octavio Paz Lozano. I remember when my, my father had first heard about him. Oh, Lord, it was, makes me feel old. You know, he, he used to say, uh, and he knew that he was from Mexico, but he still said, this guy has an Italian name. He has to have something interesting to say. It, it's always a joke. And, it, you know, 
the Italians are a lot like the Greeks. The minute they hear something has a name close to it, they always think it's, it's got to be something incredibly culturally important. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how they are that way. But, you know, that's what makes them so interesting and animated. I always felt that Mexicans had a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of Italian qualities, like my father used to say, because they had a lot of drama to them about things. And and, and you'll see why it kind of makes a, a, a funny point, and, and there's a lot of truth to it. Now, uh, Octavio Paz was, and, and is to this day, considered the, the um, not only the best known, but considered the best uh, of the Mexican poets that ever came out since Mexico was formed. He considered them greatest... And and we would consider the uh, Hispanic arena of uh, Central America and South America as well as you know Mexico. If we put it all together, he's one of the top you know writers in you know in in, in the, the language of Spanish. That's for sure. And, and so they all know pretty much who he is and what he what he has done. Now, besides a poet, he was also a writer. He he did a number of instrumental. Uh, um, we would call essays, although he had um, an unusual style, which we'll talk about in the artist section of the uh, the show, that was uh, uh, quite poetic, and, and, and sometimes uh, they ran together, the poetry and, and the uh, and the nonfiction, in, in a way that made the, the essay a lot more uh, dramatic and, and a lot more, um, I felt, three-dimensional, because sometimes... When we write things, especially when we write literary nonfiction about maybe a literary topic or possibly even a philosophical one, even when we don't mean to, sometimes we can be a bit dry or maybe a bit stale or maybe it just stays on the page instead of lifting up. And I always felt uh, when I put together concrete minimalism as my own form that that helped rise it up by, by doing something, by mixing in you know, a, a poetic sense to it all, bring it more to life. And he was already doing that um, in the in the forties and, and fifties, which was which was great. Although he was doing it for the nonfiction type, he wasn't doing it for fiction. I'm just strictly doing it for for fiction. I knew about Paz early on in my own life, and I often wonder if maybe I might have had an influence from 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 reading and, and seeing that. I never felt it directly, like consciously. I'm doing this and I'm taking some stuff from Paz. I never felt that or thought that, but. I have to wonder now unconsciously as I look more over his stuff and, and realize, uh, yeah, I, I, I see a couple of similarities to that. So I'm going to have to acknowledge that. All right. Besides a poet and writer, he was also uh, a diplomat. Now, what's interesting about Paz was is that as much as he wrote and he cared about and he loved Mexico, he was able to not only travel outside of Mexico, but also he was able to look outside of Mexico, which is one of his major, I don't know if you want to call it criticisms, but I would, I would say in, in, a, in a positive, loving way, a critique of his own country that it didn't do enough to look outside of its Mexicanness in order to be able to see how maybe others are viewing it or maybe how it should be viewing itself. And, and he's really a, a prominent figure in, in doing that. And he had some very interesting things to say about that, that when we think about Mexico, uh, maybe from either, um, you know, an American Anglo, uh, you know, point of view, or maybe even a European point of view, we don't always catch or really understand. He really helps teach us about that as the man. Now, he did a lot of travel. One of the things he did was when he realized that he had a real talent 
for for writing. And in many instances, he got the I think he got the the inkling, or maybe even the the, the I guess you could say the literary push from his grandfather, who was also a writer, and who had put together an enormous um, library in his home of uh, of European and and, and Spanish uh, literary books. So he had a, a great access to that, which was which is really wonderful because if you know anything uh, about uh, about Mexico, um, they didn't really have a, a wide raise of, of free libraries everywhere. So oftentimes, the only time you really had access to a library was either you've had your own built, you know, by somebody who cared about that, or if you were just lucky enough to be in or near one of the major cities. Mexico City would be one of them. Or possibly if you've gone to the university. But then, I mean, if your first time having access to the libraries when you're going to the university, God, what the hell you've done for your whole life? I mean, it's, that's, that's amazing that some people can, can live that way. But it just shows you how important a free public library is, you know, in, in, a, in a, a country that's supposed to be free and, and, and free thinking. And I don't know if anyone's been to Mexico before. You know, other than you know some of my Michigan listeners right now, you know it, it's it's a wonderfully fabulous and interesting country. Uh, so much full of art. Uh, it, it's amazing how much uh, it came out of that place in terms of art. And I always felt then you know in the uh, if you want to call it the the Hispanic world of cultures and countries, Mexico to me always felt like the Spanish version of Ireland. In terms of how they viewed things, and also in terms of some of the some of the tough and and, and, and difficult history that they've had, and and still able to produce such incredible art, and, and and such interesting people who are often full of of work ethic and, and character, you really find that into the in the Mexican culture, which unfortunately is contrary to the stupid stereotypes that people can have about them. But this shows you how dumb those stereotypes can be because. There's no reflection on any any reality. I, I've I've been there twice and uh, I've never seen any of that. All all I've ever seen was some interesting uh, people, who uh, more times than not uh, were really good about engaging people who were not Mexican, particularly from uh, America. I never found like uh, I was dealing with somebody that was uh, even displaying anti-Americanism, which is ironic because you would think you would hear more of that. In Mexico, especially the way sometimes uh, Americans have viewed or, or possibly have treated them, uh, but I felt more of that in Europe than I ever did in Mexico. So, and, and I've been to both places extensively. So, I always thought that was pretty interesting. Now, also, he's um, because he was a politically uh, um, attached family, and they had some real stature in Mexico. They they had a lot of things that was going on, and I think he had a relative that was working as an assistant uh, to Emilio Zapata, which later on led to the, the Zapanista uh, movement there in Mexico, which is more of a, a sort of a kind of a quasi-communist uh, uh, a, a way uh, of trying to get uh, attention to certain parts of the country that they didn't think was getting uh, enough treatment from, from Mexico City or, or enough funding or just enough respect or a little bit of all of that probably. And... His family had a part of that for a while, working with him. But uh, later on, you'll you'll learn that um, 
Paz himself rejected the philosophy and rejected Sapanthesis uh, and, and and really criticized them as, as being you know contrary to uh, you know the, uh, the the good working order of, of Mexico in terms of it becoming a a modern nation or even becoming a more united nation. I always felt that that Zapatista movement was quite similar to the uh, to the failed effort they had in the Philippines, where again it was people who adopted communism, uh, believing uh, this would be a good way to draw causes to some of the things. And this is the ironic thing: both that movement in Mexico, the Zapatista, and the communist movement they had in um, in Philippines, their um, their complaints and some of the things they wanted. And I mean, outside of the you know the, the stupid terms of uh, of communism, uh, were legitimate. I mean, so in in the case of the Philippines, you know, once they had a a more uh, democratic and, and and a more understanding government, in uh, with uh, you know the the, the people's uh, president over there, um, a lot of that movement faded away when people had realized, yeah, okay, we can start getting more funding now. We can get more respect. We can start. You know, because you know the the dictatorship for all that he he kept a lot of those areas you know poor and and, and because of whatever he was doing back in in those days. So unfortunately, sometimes people get desperate and they go for these kind of movements. Uh, for the, for the uh, Philippines, it, it dissipated later on. The pretty much the same thing happened with with Mexico. I mean, because that's really. The best way to defeat those movements is sort of to take some of the issues that they had away and get those issues solved, get them fixed, so you don't have people doing things that are contrary to your, you know, to your government and, and, or to the way of life you are starting to create and, and spread for everyone. And and uh, Paz knew that, and uh, and he was right about his his criticism about that. As as a, a, a man, we'll talk about as an artist in a little while here, but as a man. Uh, Paz is very interesting because in many ways I always felt he was sort of like and, and, and I don't want to make too much of a deep connection to it but I would say on the surface he was very much like a Mexican uh, Malcolm X in the sense that he started off in a much more radical fashion. He started off communicating with Pablo Neruda who was a diplomat in, in Chile and a communist, a uh, very good writer but he, he had turned on um, Paz to uh, to literature by praising some of the work that that Paz had sent to Neruda, and also he said you need to go check out Spain, what's going on over there. So he got him invited over to one of the writer conferences that was going on. They had a writers uh, leftist, I think it was a leftist writers congress, it, right during while the civil war was going on between the Republic and the Franco forces, and of course, like many artistic people back then, I, don't, I mean, all of them, Orwell, Hemingway, <laughs> you, you, there's so many, okay? I think Jack London, uh, definitely um, uh, Octavio Paz, uh, they were sympathetic to the Republican movement. Many of them had learned, just like Orwell had learned, that it was it was really a, a, a farce because in the end, what was really happening with that movement was and that's ultimately why it lost was is but it was no different uh, that you were going to get di- from a dictatorship from the Republican uh, Spanish th- than you would have been from the Franco forces. It was the same kind of authoritarianism that was going to come. And ironically, later on, when Franco took over, and this is not to defend some of his stupid, brutal dictatorship, but um, he wound up having more freedom in his society than, than the, the Republican forces would have ever had. 
Um, Paz uh, fell out of favor with them when he had seen his friend murdered by those forces because in the end they wasn't going to brook any kind of uh, uh, steering away from their philosophy. And this is what Orwell learned and, and that's why he criticized and walked away from them too because he's like, I might be a socialist, Orwell, or even Paz had said that in many instances, but I'm not for this. I'm not for silence and freedom. I'm not for taking away people's words or trying to make them think this and think that. That's not freedom. That's not now. So they had understood that because in the end, I don't care what kind of philosophy you have. If your core is not about trying to figure out some decent equality in a society and, and for people to maintain their freedom, no matter what, what, what philosophy you have, it's going to be a failure then if it's, not, if it's not really holding to those two things more than anything else. And we're learning that here in, in America now. If we don't have a, 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 a real uh, connection to equality, and, and I mean equality in terms of uh, you know, respect and equal opportunity. I don't mean equal results because that really is communism. Uh, and, and, and just some basic freedom. Uh, nothing, you don't have to get tra tra dramatic here, but, you know, being able to think for yourself and speak for yourself without someone kicking your door or, or criticizing you or like what's happening right now with uh, America with big tech where they're literally trying to take people's ideas away from them or, or silence the, these ideas, no matter what they are. Um, those have to be your goals. And when they are your goals, especially when you're an uh, artistic person, you wind up steering away from places like that and, and ideas like that. So pause. As a man, he traveled. He, he became uh, really enamored with surrealism that he learned when he went to Paris. He was uh, flirting with Marxism for a while, and some of his early poetry work had some of its ideas, but later on he realized how much of a failure it was going to be, and he was not going to be able to tolerate things that were going to murder people because they think a certain way or, or, or hurt societies that, are, that need freedom, and now it's restricting it more than ever. So he understood that in the end, those things were not going to work. Just like Orwell, he just had a different way of going about it. But in the end, he was in that category. It made him, incredibly enough, to many uh, Hispanic uh, writers uh, as a controversial figure. I, I know for a long time, he had a long relationship with Carlos Fuentes, another Mexican uh, writer, and he, they wind up uh, not no longer speaking, had an argument and stopped because at one point, uh, Carlos Fuentes was supporting the, the Sandinista movement, you know, the failed communist movement in Nicaragua, where Paz was like, this is the same crap I've seen in, in Republican Spain and other places. This is not going to work. It's dumb. And, and of course, you know, it failed there, and, and, and you know, they, they got wind up getting overthrown by you know, democratic forces, you know, which brought the country a lot more prosperity, which is the way it's supposed to be. None of these systems are going to be perfect. But again, you want to be able to find the one that's going to work best, that's going to provide the most amount of equality and the most amount of freedom. Those really have to be the two standards amongst anything else. And as long as those two things are being done, you're okay. Some artists, unfortunately, are more blinded than others about this sort of thing. Paz wasn't. So, ironically, how made something like that a, a, a controversial because he was still a very, I would consider a left-wing fellow, a definitely somebody quite liberal, and he considered himself the same way. I think in the end, for Paz, uh, you're better off just calling him a, a social democrat. That's really what he was. I think he believed in a sort of a social de democracy uh, and or being a social democrat, yeah, that, that's almost like in the European brand of that, you know what I mean? Uh, more probably Scandinavian than anything else. But I think ultimately that's where he came about. And that's fine because those are societies, whether people want to have criticism or not, 
that do have the objectives of trying to be as equal as possible and, and, and allow an enormous amount of freedom in their society. And, and they have achieved that. So those are not really bad objectives to go by. It doesn't have to always be the American or Canadian or, or British standard of what, what's considered equality and freedom. There's other ones. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, as long as it does obey those two things, you're okay. And that's what made him quite interesting. We're going to learn why he was the way he was when we go into the more artistic section of this. Now, besides being a, a poet and a writer, he winds up becoming a diplomat uh, for, for the government of uh, Mexico and uh, served uh, uh, many years in India as, as its official ambassador. Um, he later on resigned once uh, the Mexican government started a, a, a massacre of students that were protesting in some of the conditions in Mexico. Remember, Mexico, in many ways, like, like America, has spent decades upon decades you know, trying to get through its own problems with freedom and equality, its own problems with corruption, which is still a problem to this day, you know, in, in Mexico. I mean, they've made a lot of progress, so it's not about beating up Mexico, but it is about the acknowledgement, and I think we'll talk about that artistically because he had more to say about that, Paz, but what I can say, uh, which has always been the truth about Mexico more than any of the countries in South America or Central America is, it's not a poor country. But the corruption and the problems they have there, it, it makes it more than it needs to be. Because quite frankly, there really shouldn't be as much of an exodus to leave there to come to America or other places if the country got itself together on many of those fronts. There's still many things it needs to fix. Remember, this is a great producer of country of foods, a great producer of oil, there's a lot of wonderful things there. Manufacturing, there's a lot of things in Mexico that can support all kinds of things in, in Mexico, including more economic stabilization and even more uh, uh, jobs there. If they just made it a, a, a priority and, and clean up some of the mess that's there. I mean, it, it's happening, but it's certainly a lot slower than it needs to be. But I really think that one day Mexico is going to be the point where you're not even going to have people wanting to leave because they'll be happy to be there and stay there because, you know, I lived in Arizona for a number of years in California and I met plenty of, uh, of Mexicans that came from there, worked there, even wound up staying in America that would always, always say that uh, they would have preferred being back in their own country than, than living elsewhere. And who can blame anyone for feeling that way, especially since so much of that it has to offer. And this is what I think Paz really were able to show us. And a lot of his writings and a lot of the things he had to say about the country and about about life and, and the human condition, you know, in general. So he resigned from that and he went back to just pretty much becoming a, a writer. Um, also, a, 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 a newspaper columnist. And he, he did a number of things out there to, uh, to, to continue to support himself. He won a number of prizes that also brought him... Uh, uh, funding, but his, his writing uh, was able to take off and, and, and really did really did well for him. Um, he is known as we're now going into the uh, the the artist section of, of, of Octavio Paz. He's known more for anything else of uh, what's called the Labyrinth of Solitude, and it's pretty much a, a poetic essay on the culture of Mexico. And he has some very interesting things to say about Mexico that people. We should know, but we just don't really think about it or consider it. But he understood it at the ground level that it's a society that was continuing to struggle 
with its own identity because in many instances you had uh, an indigenous population uh, what they used to call the mestizos or, or, or the uh, the aboriginal indian population you know the the aztec ones and and they were intermarrying and intermingling and, and eventually becoming the the mexican person because the people from spain who colonized mexico were doing all that together that's what created the the modern mexican person and and he had a lot to say about that pause because he always felt that 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 marriage between Spain and the original inhabitants of Mexico was taking a lot longer for people to digest and to understand on a cultural basis and, and, and to move out. In many ways, he felt that until that, that, that really matured, so to speak, it, it, it had like stages of, of its own rebellion and stages of its own self-doubt you know, as a culture, and many instances he thought it made them, you know, hesitant as people, you know, and he brought some of these interesting uh, concepts and things really to think about on, the, on a deep level in the, in the Labyrinth of Solitude. Solitude is what he talked about a lot in many of his works, which we'll, we'll read later on. We're going to be doing not only quotes from a pause, but also read about six or seven of his poems, just sort of get a gist of where he was coming from on, on things. Pause was uh, quite philosophical in mo most of his writing, and, and there wasn't too many of his poems that were straight-ahead straight, straight ahead poems. They're, they're different in the, in the sense that, to me, I, they always felt like they had the, the germ of the haiku without having that same structure. It, it just seemed like it was purely philosophical, but it always had uh, an eye to human nature and sometimes even to the, to the Mexican culture. But he wrote more and beyond the Mexican culture in many instances. But the Labyrinth of Solitude is considered his masterwork. It's literally required reading in most of the universities throughout South and Latin America. It's becoming more here as well in America. In the sense of really giving you a grounding of the history and the culture of Mexico. And, and, and the artistic, I, I think, relevancy of where many of those things come from. I, and that's why I think in many instances, Mexico um, artistic uh, feelings and, and even some of its stylings, it always, to me, it always felt like a type of like an Ireland, like a Spanish language Ireland, because in many ways you had Ireland also dealing with that, uh, mixing in it with the English language and even the English religion, and then you combine them with the Gaelic and you combine them with the, you know, with the with the with the Celtic, and, and you combine them with the uh, with the the uh, the ancient uh, uh, Irish religions that were definitely not uh, uh, Christian in origin, and putting those together to make a, a, a interesting, fascinating people that became also a people struggling with their identity, struggling with persecution. Certainly, uh, some of the most incredible writers are coming out of Ireland as well, and there's reasons for that, but it's because of all of that, that. I guess you could say cultural intermarriage and also that internal struggle and, and all of that goes with that mixing together. You know, it produces some, some incredible things. And I think Mexico in many ways, you know, um, is that version of it and, and continues onward. Now, as the artist, Paz, 
he didn't stand still long on many of the stylings he did. So I always find that interesting. If you ever ask somebody, they know anything about Paz, they're going to be able to tell you, uh, dude, he was everywhere doing everything. There wasn't one particular style about him. It makes him incredibly unique that way. I mean, literally, he, he, he dealt early on with, 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 with some Marxism. Then he went over to the surrealism, which is probably, in terms of a style, the closest you could say about Paz in terms of that, if you look at it in a percentage-wise, I would say more of his work was in the direction of surrealism than anything else. But not that much more because uh, he was also uh, big on modernism, which later on he even abandoned. And he, he had he had uh, real real strands of Buddhism in there and Hinduism, probably from the, his travels and his uh, tour of India as a diplomat there. And in many instances, he he's also found his own, you know, pause, I guess you can say, uh, culture uh, or, or styling in, in his writing. There's certainly, uh, towards the end as well, a, a certain pause um, theme or, or a release, a, a signature of, if you read enough of his work, you can kind of catch it because of the way he says and phrases certain things. And also because he does talk about the human condition and, and human nature, and even in, in a sense, um, how our, which he feels a solitude that all of us have to a certain extent, he believes that that's the, the greatest battle that people face uh, beyond everything else. All the other stuff is superficial compared to the average solitude that we all have, and how we deal with that makes up what our character is and, and how we reveal ourselves to the world, maybe even how we interpret the world or how we allow the world to interpret us. These are some of his uh, major themes in many of his writings and a lot of his philosophy, and you'll, you'll see that in a number of, the, of his quotes we have. So let's go there. He was an ever-changing man in a lot of his ideas because Paz believed in the freedom to continue to explore he did not like ideologies at all. He thought they were all false because he, he felt in the end they stick you to some place that you are not allowed to grow. So that's how he felt. He felt that if you had an ideology, whether it be political or even artistic, at the age of 20, you, you shouldn't be having the same one at the age of 30 because in the end, what the hell did you have grown then if, if you got the same thing for the last 10 years? That was his philosophy, that growth was more honest than standing still. Of course, you're going to have all kinds of people debate this, but I'm letting you know that's what that's what Paz was thinking. And you'll be able to notice his, his right away from these two quotes because you can see that his worldview and his thinking was, was much more different than anyone expected over the years, okay? All right, so here's what he said early on in, in his career about, about poetry, all right? Wouldn't it be better to turn life into poetry rather than to make life from, rather than making poetry from life? Excuse me. All right. So his first quote there early on was, uh, wow, wouldn't it be great if we just turned, you know, life into poetry rather than having to make poems from life? Cool, quaint, idealistic, maybe even, you know, the, the typical young thinking, I guess you could say. And then this is what he says later on in his career. There can be no society without poetry, but society can never be realized as poetry. So it's definitely a, a, a complete turnaround in thinking. 
years later in, the, in his writing career. And yeah, it, it's probably a, a lot more realistic than the first quote, <laughs> you know, because I think what he had learned later on about the politics of life and about what true freedom is and what systems of thought work better with equality and freedom than others, you know, meaning communism, because if you think about it, that's one of the problems with the dictatorship type of style of, of, of thinking, whether it be fascism or Nazism or, or communism or even just uh, restrictive socialism is, is that it's really trying to control things and make it like everything is some kind of a wonderful equal poem and everybody walks into the Hollywood or, 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 or the Hallmark Sunset or something. Not understanding that the dramatic cost from taking from people and, and stealing other people's dreams so you can try to make somebody else's come true in the end. All you're really doing is playing a shell game and someone's going to get hurt, someone's going to die, someone's going to be in jail for the kind of manipulation of people's dreams and, and society. You can't, you can't live that way. It doesn't really work. History continues to show that. I think it's the reason why he changed his political uh, philosophy. I think in many ways he changed his artistic philosophy just because of that. Because his second statement makes it really clear that, you know, we can never realize the society as poetry. We can't. It's always going to be rougher. It's always going to be more unpredictable. It's always going to be, in many ways, uh, a constant learning lesson, an illumination that never stops. And maybe that's that's a good thing because that's how we can become consistently more creative by, by acknowledging what's going on in the world and, and trying to learn from it and, and, and even even let us uh, uh, teach uh, more things about what we learn elsewhere because we've become more open rather than, again, just being stuck and closed with one idea. I think that's the reason why he, he was so open about his, uh, his poetic stances. He was very... All right, here we go. So we'll do a couple of quotes of him, and then we'll uh, we'll go to um, a couple of his poems. So you kind of get an idea of what we're talking about here. All right. And cannot poetry have its primary objective rather than the creation of poems, the creation of poetic moments? So Paz was going into places that a lot of writers didn't even go to. It's one thing. To question human nature. It's another thing to question uh, the human condition. Hell, it's definitely an interesting and, and commenting to question the way people make judgments or, or the way society has been organized or even organized religion. But he's literally questioning just the structure of poetry that maybe you shouldn't be working so hard to build a poem as much as to build a poetic moment. That maybe that poetic moment might be more real, might be more vital, might be more important than the structure which later on could come. Maybe you shape it on later on after you've gotten that moment in there. It's a different way of looking at things. Something that many people don't consider. Whether it's it's entirely valid or not, whether it's something we can uh, duplicate on a regular basis, or whether it's just something that we can grab a hold on to when we feel we got that moment versus other times, well, I'm not really sure. I mean, it's really about understanding what he has to say about it and, and maybe seeing if that can apply in your life. Or maybe it, it, you're, you're going to catch, you know, that ride on, on that, you know, that, that poetic train every so often, but not all the times. You know, like in life, 
Sometimes we miss the train. We're at the station. What do we do? Do we cry and, you know, take a pee on the terminal because we're mad? Or, or, or do we just say, all right, um, I'm going to get better prepared to next time so I don't miss the train? It, it could just be about our response to it versus, you know, our tantrum. Next, and, and one of a million uh, quotes, I'm not going to read them all here, uh, about solitude and some of the interesting and, and really in-depth things he has to say about that. Solitude is the profoundest face of the human condition. Man is the only being who knows he's alone. So he's really getting to the point where he's talking about us as not only individually isolated in our own solitudes, trying to find out to find out who we are as people or as personalities or as characters, but also maybe amongst all the creatures on the earth, he's pretty much saying that he thinks we're the only ones that understand that we're alone, that have that type of awareness. Because if you think about it, most of the other creatures don't really feel that kind of loneliness because their fear mechanism of fight and flight is really about constantly being in play. They might not ever feel alone because they're always having to wonder about food and safety and shelter and all of that. They don't exactly have a moment where they're sitting down with a drink, you know, watching the Animal Planet in, in on HBO in their little caves, okay? They don't really have that kind of life like we do, where we have the time to think and to contemplate. I don't know. I don't know if creatures had more of that, if that would make something different in their, you know, in their whole makeup. I don't know. Maybe it makes them more lazy and they're going to get eaten quicker. You got me. But it is an interesting thing to ponder. It really is. And pause really brings us to some of these thoughts that others don't. All right, let's read a couple of his poems to kind of get an idea of, of the writer he is and some of the thinking he has. Okay? Paz, like I said, uses many different styles, mostly about philosophical angling. That's really the way he writes, and he could talk anything about the human to the to the to the nature and etc. He has a lot of nature poems. All right, this one is called "Wind, Water, and Stone." Water hollows stone. Wind scatters water. Stone stops the wind. Water, wind, stone. Wind carves stone. Stones a cup of water. Water escapes in his wind. Stone, wind, water. Wind signs, excuse me, wind sings in its whirling. Water murmurs going by. Unmoving stone keeps still. Wind, water, stone. Each is another and no other. Crossing and vanishing through their empty names. Water, stone, wind. I think you can hear in that poem, not only his deliberations about the course of nature and how it has a certain cycle to it. But you also hear, you know, like I said, that, 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 whole, that whole Japanese haiku, that whole trying to take some philosophy out of nature or, or creating something out of it to let you know that it's there. You know, he, he does that in, in his own manner. But, of course, not the same structure at all. All right, here's another one. Uh, this one's called Coda. Perhaps to love is to walk through this world, to learn to be silent like the oak in the linden of the fable, to learn to see your glance scattered seeds, is planted a tree. I talk because you shake its leaves. 
kind of one of my favorite ones of his, actually, because I really like the way that ends on how um, you're like, I guess you could say almost like a hostage to what you're beho being beholden in nature. And then suddenly you come to alive and animate when something in nature is moving. And in this case, he's shaking its leaves that, oh, they're falling down. Oh, that's happening. And, and then suddenly you're reacting to it. So I kind of like how it, it does that, you know, both you're immobile and then you're mobile later on based on uh, how you're reacting, you know, to nature. I always found that was uh, that was pretty interesting to do that. Now. I got a couple of things here from other people having some interpretations of, of, of some of his writing, besides myself, of course. Uh, world literature today, okay, uh, a writer by the name of Manuel Duran, he felt that Paz's exploration of the Mexican existential values, existentialism is something that he was very much a, a part of in his, in his own uh, philosophy, especially when he learned from what he had learned from uh, living in Europe for a while. And uh, I think it definitely had a, 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 a turn on, on the way he, he looked at things, especially from um, uh, writers like um, uh, Albert Camus uh, using, uh, I think, uh, the, the Stranger and the Plague. Those are some of the, the important novels of existentialism that he was really influenced by. Uh, he, he explored uh, the Mexican version of it. Mexican existential values permit him to open a door to understanding other cultures and other cultures and other countries, thus appealing to readers of diverse backgrounds. It is definitely one of the real, I find, hallmarks to Paz in the sense that he could still write about his culture of Mexico, but in a way that's helping you understand it, too. It's not just writing it in the inside version of it. Oh, I got to be, you know, really immersed in Mexican culture to understand what he's talking about. No. He learns uh, a lot about it, and he helps you learn about it by, by breaking it down, by, by just giving you the, 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 the basic understanding of, of how he's viewing it. And it really makes you learn a lot more that way. Now, I've never been... One, uh, for the for the critics of, of Paz, I mean, I even got a few of those emails. And we have a mailbag in the end of the month. And we'll get a little bit more extensive about that. But I'll share at least one of them with you. I had someone write to me, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it exactly in front of me. I'm going to have a few more that did come out of though, And maybe I'll have some more positive ones too. But we have some folks here, especially in, in, in America, that are not really terribly fond of Paz. Some of them felt that he spent too much time you know, examining Mexico instead of just simply sharing Mexico. I don't really understand whether there is supposed to be a difference there until when I heard more of the, of the email, then I understood that you had some some Mexican writers that they, they resented Paz. They didn't feel he was Mexican enough. We've heard this in other cultures before. We, we They got people in America, you're not black enough. You're not white enough. You're not this, you're not that. Silliness, I, I call it, and, and that's all it can be, because to me, it's a form of bigotry, and it doesn't help us to understand anything. I don't understand why someone would want to knock him, okay? He was born in Mexico City. He died in Mexico City. He traveled the world. He brought the world to us. He brought us to understand more about Mexico. Um, we'll learn a little bit more about some of his awards and, and etc., but to me, the criticism doesn't make any sense. In fact, the, the, the critic said in the email that they felt the only reason why I was putting out 
Octavio Paz in my show is because uh, 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 it's the kind of typical writer that the white guy would like. Again, don't know what the hell that means. I'm an Italian guy. Don't know anything about being a white guy. Okay, I'm a writer. I've been around the world as well as Mexico and Europe. So it's not hard to understand where he's coming from. It, it really isn't. And I don't know what that actually is supposed to mean. Other than, again, you're always going to have in a culture and even in, in, even in the art, you're always going to have a small corner or a small segment that thinks that if you can't say the things they want to hear, if you can't agree with every single thing they pick to, and even in this case, if you can't get along or you can't be interested in the small group of writers that they feel must represent the culture, then you're, you're an idiot or, or you're a sellout or you're a compromiser or you're something else. It's, it's dopey thinking. It's the reason why we have so many problems in this world is because you finally get somebody to try to expose more and to learn more and you're always going to have other people uh, criticizing that. Like that's supposed to be a bad thing. I don't know why anyone would want to even criticize Octavia Paz or anybody else trying to learn something from him. I feel, and yeah, it's my opinion and that's fine if you don't agree with it, but I, I feel that if you can't praise one of your greatest Okay, uh, then who else are you going to praise? Why? What was wrong with this guy? One of your greatest writers. People learning from him to this day. He's been dead like 20 years. People still learning from him. He's still out there. More and more of his works get interpreted into the English language for more people to learn for, for generations to come. That should be an enormous thing of pride. That should be an enormous, uh, I guess you could say, you know, um, finger on your culture. That, yeah, it's out there. Those are things that, that should be talked about in, in the most positive of senses. And guess what? Those are not politically correct things to say. Those are not some of the, 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 the dopey, crappy things that we do in America where they only talk about things because they want to make themselves look good. They want to make themselves sound like they're diverse or all that phony, only phony racial nonsense that doesn't mean anything. Why do we talk about pause? Not because he spoke Spanish, not because he's Latin, not because he's from Mexico, because he's among the greatest writers that ever lived. He is perhaps the greatest Mexican poet that ever lived. He is definitely in, in the Hall of Fame of, of writers on the entire planet that spoke and wrote in the Spanish language. Those are the facts. That's not an opinion. That's not me guessing. That's not me trying to impress somebody so I can go to bed tonight and feel like I've done something. No, that happens to be the truth. And only people out in, in, in some distant corner someplace wouldn't agree. Because you're not going to find anybody on any level of art that wouldn't agree with that statement. Or those statements. Because they happen to be the truth. So of course, why would I not want to talk about some of the greatest? Especially somebody that can teach us things. Things about our own art, things about our own lives, things about our own culture. That's what we're supposed to be able to do in literature. This is what it's supposed to do. Remember, we talk about this all the time on the show. Writing to make a connection. Well, here you go. Here's an older Mexican guy writing in Spanish, getting translated, and, and starting to change the world. Making connections. How the hell does a guy who's talking about Mexico making a connection for me and I'm some white guy supposedly from New Jersey who's not supposed to know anything? Why? Because he's making the connection. Teaching me about something that I can use in my own life. 
So I don't have to be a Spanish-speaking person. I don't have to be a Mexican. I don't have to be anything other than somebody who has an open enough mind to want to hear what he has to say and determine if I can use it. That's what writing is supposed to do. He's doing the greatest thing that we all should expect from a writer. And again, when you have an entire culture like Mexico, where there's still lots of people, even around the world, that don't exactly understand everything that's going on over there, or don't really know too much about other than what they hear from a TV show or something, or, or, or from a cartoon, well... Here's the real life from a real Mexican writer who's somebody who lived there and somebody who's also been around the world who can make comparisons. That's what great literature does. And that's what a, a great writer does. Octavia Paz. There you go, right there. Any other criticism? Don't understand it. I certainly reject it because it doesn't have any validity. It really doesn't. All right, here we go. Now, Octavio Paz did a couple unusual things too because as much as he wanted to experiment in the philosophies of things he'd learned to incorporate them into his thinking and into his writing, he also did a lot of interesting structural political things, uh, poetic things, I'm sorry, that most either didn't do or at least he wanted to be able to do it to try to, to, try to see how that experiment would work, to add it to the canon of, of you know, Spanish writers as well because there wasn't a lot of them doing that. And one of the ones he did was, he wrote a very long poem, okay, called uh, The Sunstone in 1957, all right? It contrasted different images, and it was based on the Aztec calendar stone, okay, which represented the Aztec universe. And in many ways, he was using this to try to help symbolize the loneliness of individuals, but their search for union. Again, that, that's really what writing is about, the search for union, because what's that search? Connection. That's what we're all searching for. Connection. People always tell me, I don't understand sometimes about writing. Well, there's, there's, you don't have to understand about writing. Don't overthink it. If your life is about making that connection to either your God because of your religion or making that connection to your community because you want to live there and not be lonely, making that connection with somebody else so you can have someone that you love for the rest of your life, or making that connection with children so you can go out in the world and they can be happy and represent your values, that's what writing is. Forming something to make a connection. That's all it is. And we overthink it sometimes. And that's what he did in this particular long poem. It's like a book-long poem. Okay? He won a big award for that, too, which was which was really great. And it was also a part of, in 1990, him getting the Nobel Prize for Literature. I think the Labyrinth of, of Solitude and that, that one long poem itself was, was an incredible uh, artistic achievement that was uh, cited in, in his Nobel Prize uh, nomination and an eventual award. Because I think before him, there really wasn't anybody trying to sit down and explore both uh, the uh, the ancient impact of, of, of Mexico in the Aztec one and then, of course, the modern marriage of those two cultures together to make what, who makes the modern Mexican person. And he was able to do that with those two pieces of work. Again, major works on a major culture. A culture that had so much art coming out of it all over the place. And, and really, he helped, uh, I feel, in many ways, focused on that. And by, and this is the ironic thing, by him focusing on this, 
he also really gives lots of room and lots of attention to other writers uh, around uh, anyone from uh, Central and, and South Marathon or well, all, all what you would call the Spanish-speaking world. Really, he helps bring that out. Even people in Spain are like, wow, this is something else. He, he's in many ways speaking for us in our language, even if it isn't always our culture. Because what does that do? That pushes them. Hey, he did it over there. Why don't I do it over here in Paraguay? Okay? Why don't I do some stuff over here in, 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 in Rio de Janeiro? Why don't I do some stuff over here you know, in Chile? That's what it does. It inspires people. It pushes them to also do something. Another connection. Another another wonderful thing that, that happens. That positive domino effect, as they say. Okay? Now, this is some of his central thinking about the culture of Mexico. And, and the language sounds a little rough, really. But he's not being rude, and I don't think he's being... Uh, I, I feel prejudicial at all. I think he's trying to really understand... The complex nature of, of, of the Mexican culture. And this is what he says. Paz argues that Mexicans see themselves as children of the conquering Spanish father who abandoned his offspring and the treacherous Indian mother who turned against her own people. Because of the wounds that Mexicans suffer as a result of their dual cultural heritage, they have developed a defensive stance. They hide behind Max and take refuge in the Labyrinth of Solitude. Like I said, that's the volume that literally um, is standard in in uh, Latin American history. It's, it's, that, it's that important. And this is what he had to say about that. I mean, it, and you can see that he's, he's trying to talk about how until they can come to terms, really, with all of that, there's still going to be a culture that's in many ways churning in, in, in a kind of a conflict. Sure, it produces a lot of important writing, a lot of important art, but we don't really know if many ways it, it, it doesn't produce all of the, of the uh, I feel, the, the systematic uh, governments that it needs to be a, a much more fairer and stable society. But it's in that direction, you know, and that's definitely going to be in its future as long as it continues what it's been doing. So I would definitely have a lot of, a lot of hope and encouragement for that. Now, more quotes from him about uh, a philosophy and in, 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 you know, in art itself, which I really like. Poetry is not a genre in harmony with the modern world. Its innermost nature is hostile or indifferent to the dogma of modern times, progress, and the cult of the future. It's one of his uh, continual philosophical leanings that he always felt that as much as modernism was important to some of the things he was learning and doing in his writing. He always felt that maybe in, in some instances we leaned too much on the modern life or maybe even on technology to a certain extent. He wasn't anti-technology. He wasn't a technophobe. But he was definitely somebody that was a little bit more suspicious to it because he didn't want to, again, be caught up in you know the same thinking for 10, 20 years. He wanted to continue to, to, to move. But he also understood that as much as a progress was important, he always felt that people who just continued to work on the future, they were almost like members of the cult. He would say they, they were a cult of the future because, again, he thought that people spending too much on the future, they didn't spend enough on the present. And in many ways, if you do that, you're losing out 
Because you don't know if whatever the hell you're trying to prophesize about in the future is right or not. In the meantime, you just threw the away the, the, the presence. Because you're spending all the time thinking about the, the future instead of living, you know, in the present. And and he's right about that, I, I think, in many instances. All right. Here is another one of his uh, wonderful poems, which I really like. It's called Flame Speech. I read in a poem to talk as divine, but the gods don't speak. They make and unmake worlds while men do the talking. They play frightening games without words. The spirit descends loosening tongues, but doesn't speak words. It speaks fire. Lit by a god, language becomes a prophecy of flames and a tower of smoke and collapse of syllables burned, ash without meaning. The word of man is the daughter of death. We talk because we are mortal. Words are not signs. They are years. Saying what they say, the words we are saying say time. They name us. We are time's names. To talk is human. Definitely one of his more um, dense philosophical poems. Because it's as much as it might use nature as some of its elements, it's not a poem about nature at all. It certainly is really about man's place in the universe. And and if our, uh, if our talking is sometimes not enough for communication or, or, or for connection, because sometimes we can just be uh, wrong or we can just be fatalistic or we could just be morons and maybe feeling and thinking is, is more superior, even dreaming than to talking uh, before we're willing to go out there and do whatever we have to do in life or, or in art. So it's a, it's a hell of a way of thinking about things and, and certainly one that uh, bears some... Uh, some consideration. Okay. All right. Another quote which I really liked here. Little by little, not without astonishment, I rediscovered the great names of the 18th and 19th centuries who have been the master thinkers of my grandfather and other Mexican liberals. They did not offer me a doctrine or a catechism, they were and are a source of inspiration. So really, it's it's his more concrete statement, because sometimes it's hard to get things uh, from Paz and concrete. He talks a lot in not only philosophy, but in, in, in many ways uh, deliberately in, in metaphor. But this is really more straightforward for him, that he really thinks that, in the end, a more fluid thinking or a more open uh, reasoning or maybe just a more open mind it's better for us to comprehend how we can create a better society or, or, or better art versus than simply just, you know, trying to be, you know, uh, baptized into one way of thinking, which he always felt was not only the enemy of freedom, and he was right, but in many instances uh, could be the enemy of the kind of art he was trying to do. Because, yeah, if you're stuck in one political philosophy you never want to change, it's never going to cover all the things that are happening in your life. You could be missing out. Some say the same thing about art, too. I digress, and I disagree. It's fine what Paz wanted to do and what he did do. There's nothing wrong with that. But no one says that we have to always be changing and doing something. There's a point when we can settle down what we're happy to do. There's nothing wrong with that. If we miss out, we miss out. That's a choice of, of, of being human. You don't have to always explore everything in life. If you don't want to, you don't have to. I don't think you should be called a name. 
You know, he didn't want to explore this, but he's good on that. No, you, you don't have to. If you just want to write in the romantic sense, then write it. If that's all you're happy with, then be happy with that. If you just want to be a surrealist in everything you do until you die, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a valid way of going about things. Maybe you're in love with that philosophy. Maybe that philosophy just makes a, a deep connection for you. Maybe you just want to be the prophet of that philosophy and that style so you can spread that out to the world. Again, nothing wrong with that. Okay? Because you can also make the, um, I guess you could say the, the observation, if not the literary criticism, that constantly changing all of this way can also be a, a, a little confusion to people who want to read your work. Because it's like, Damn, what the hell happened over here? Wasn't he just over in surrealism like two books ago? Where are we at now? What's going on with this Hindu slash Buddhist thing? Doesn't mean that that way of going about things is wrong because it's not. But is this constant change and then this evolution in your thought or these explorations? Can you carry all the same people with you throughout the course of your writings? Or you continue to just pick up different parts of audiences who say, you know, I'm down with the surrealism, but I really don't get what's going on with this Buddhist stuff. Yeah, that's always a possibility too. And I don't think, really, that a writer, whether it would be Paz or anybody else, is supposed to sit back and go, oh my God, I don't want to miss these people out. I don't want to miss... You got to do whatever you got to do, whatever your spirit is going to bring you to. But in a conscious way, you know, it, it is something to consider. And, and if you want to look at it in a literary criticism sort of way, you could say doing that presents its own challenges than just simply sticking with one or the other. So again, you get, you got different ways of going about things that have enormous amount of pros and cons. I don't believe there's one way of going about it. So don't get me wrong on that. And I'm not trying to even insinuate that. I'm just saying that what he did not everybody is going to do or everybody has to do. I mean, you could just learn about whatever he did and you take it from there and say, great, I'm just not interested in doing that, but I'm glad he did that and I'm glad I learned a lot more from it. And you could still do that. Maybe it even helps you make a, 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 a narrow choice of some of the things you want to do. Maybe I'm just happy with modernism and surrealism and that's it. I don't want to go with anything else. And he helped me get there. That's great too. Now, one of the more straightforward things he said about his own political stance on things, and he didn't speak a lot of it, ironically, is for a man of my generation, our century has been a long intellectual and political struggle in the favor of freedom. So that he was amongst everything else. And that continues to make him more of a controversial figure than many people would prefer in the Latin world or in Latin literature, which is ironic because you had a lot of them that were more favoring of socialism, whether it be Sandinistas or whatever Fidel Castro was doing or whatever Hugo was doing over there in, in Venezuela before he died. You know, all of those things are, of course, a complete failure, as we know. But nevertheless, there's a lot of artists that are sympathetic to that or, or loved that whole spirit of the working class and, and rising up and blah, blah, blah. But most of that was just artistic fantasy more than an actual reality. But again, people are free to do about that and nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. If that's what you're into, that's what you're into. But I never felt that when they did that, that was something they needed to knock him about because he wasn't interested in doing that. 
As much as he was an artist, he still had an eye with the real world. He knew the real results of what was going on. You know, he knew about what was up with the Zapatistas. He knew what was going on with, with, the, with the Republicans in Spain. He he's, was not blind to that. Ironically, him and Orwell and just a very few small others really are in a small class by themselves who understood that they wanted to be artists and they loved art, but they were not blind to what reality was. It didn't let them blind them to that. And he was one of the few that he didn't let that happen. To the day he died, he understood how important it was to to be able to be free to speak your mind without having to worry about someone knocking on your door or knocking you over the head. So that that was really I I felt one of his uh, stronger you know hallmarks as a as a man and as a writer. All right, let's read another one of his uh, poems. This is one of my favorites. In case you notice, he's, he kind of, other than some of his longer poem books, uh, most of his poems in general are pretty short. This is actually a little bit longer than usual. But he tends to be writing short, more of a minimalist than anything else. This one is called, As One Listens to the Rain. Listen to me as one listens to the rain. Not attentive, not distractive. Light footsteps, dim drizzle, water that is air. Air that is time, the day is still leaving, the night is yet to arrive. Figurations of mist at the turn of the corner, figurations of time at the bend in this pause. Listen to me as one listens to the rain, without listening. Hear what I say with eyes open inward. Sleep with all five senses awake, it's raining, light footsteps, a murmur of syllables. Air and water, words with no weight. What are, what we are, and are the days and years at this moment, weightless time and heavy, heavy sorrow. Listen to me as one listens to the rain. Wet asphalt is shining. Steam rises and walks away. Night unfolds and looks at me. You are you, and your body is steam. You and your face of night. You and your hair, unhurried lightning. You cross the street and enter my forehead. Footsteps of water across my eyes. Listen to me as one listens to the rain. Definitely one of my uh, more favorite poems of Paz. I like that one particularly because it seemed like uh, as he's going on through his poetic career and the evolution of his thought, he's starting to get, I, I feel, better on intermingling some philosophy along with the nature and, and poetry in such a way that you can see it's becoming more Paz and less that philosophical nature haiku type of philosophy that we, 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 we've heard before in some of his work and that we know from haiku in general. He seems to be retaining some of those basic elements but wording it out into a, a regular type of prose type of a poem uh, but still has all of the, the features of that. And I think really for him it was a, an artistic uh, evolution and, and, and in many instances uh, a, a singular uh, achievement of this is a pause signature poem versus some of his other work. And I, and I really like that a lot. I really do. I like the, uh, the last section of the show over here. It won't be too long. I think we covered a great deal here. Is the, the meaning. What is the meaning of Octavio Paz? Well, I, I feel some of the greatest meaning about Paz is as much as he believed in a society 
that did his best to make things equal and give people equal chances and also believed in freedom. He obviously, in many, many instances, as we can see here, uh, completely practiced what he was preaching because here's a man that's constantly changing throughout his life, traveling, rethinking. I mean, he probably has like 10 different forms of schools of thought inside his writing on top of his own style. Here's a man that, as much as he's a poet and a writer, in many instances, he's also a cultural critic. In many instances, uh, I mean, no one has said that The Labyrinth of Solitude is a historical book. I mean, it has historical significance, but it's not exactly a history book. But nevertheless, it's so important that in many instances, it's read alongside with the formal Mexican history book. That's how important it is. So he got to that level of having writing that can still be artistic and beautifully poetic and enriching your soul, but you're still learning lessons about some of the things that he was posing to you about the merging of two cultures, the building of a new society, where that society as a country and a nation becomes, you know, in the in the whole the whole midst of all the other nations in the world. And I really think that he did that without having to be you know, over dramatic about it. Look at me. We're at, we're Mexico. We're this. We're that. Ba 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 ba. You know, he didn't have to do that because, in the end, I don't think he felt it was necessary because he just felt, I think, in his own humble way, that by speaking the Mexican experience into existence, having it codified in, on the page, brought out to the world, that was enough. Because I think he do, I think he really thought in the end that this is something that was going to carry the day for him. Because I think his most of, of his heart and soul was in that type of work. And he was right. It did to this day. It's, it required reading. It's one of the most important things you have to read about any kind of Latin American culture. Uh, because quite frankly, if you think about it, many of the cultures throughout South America and throughout Central America, they have a similar, I guess you could say, dilemma that Mexico, you know, is, is dealing with, where they're combining different worlds together. I mean, if you think about Brazil, you're thinking about, again, Aboriginal Indians combining with Portuguese explorers, and, and, and now they all speak in Portuguese, but there's other, you know, individual languages there still and different cultures and how they mix the consolidism along with the, with the, um, with the religions that were that were there from from you know fifty thousand years ago, so you you're dealing with that all across that continent and all across the Central American on on different levels, and I think that's why they looked to that because beyond just him saying that this is the Mexican experience, he is talking about how this is experience for any culture or for anybody else that's merging two things together. I mean, I think in some ways, if you were a biracial person, no matter where you're from, and you read that, you'd probably get something up too. Because again, you need to be able to figure out how can you meld those two cultures together to make some sense of your own identity and how you can go forward so you're not walking around in conflict all the time, which unfortunately sometimes happens with people who are biracial. And before we even had that term biracial, I, I really think that Paz was pretty much talking about that. In many ways, that's what he's saying, that the typical Mexican, I guess you could say culturally, is like a biracial person. 
you know, with the Aztecs trying to form with the with the with the with the Anglo Spaniard and, and becoming somebody else, a Mexican, that would be the modern word now. So it really makes him an extraordinary cultural thinker as well. Because remember, as he's doing all of this explanation, as he's doing all of this exploration, as he's doing all of this, he's doing it in a way. That is constructive. He's doing it in a way that's instructive. He's doing it in a way that is not destructive. This is not done in some kind of half-assed way. He's not doing it in any kind of prejudice. He has all his facts together. He's certainly not doing it in any way to push one thing or the other. You know, I think he was right in many instances from his his just his own raw emotional feeling that in many instances when he was trying to combine these two cultures together, and, and this is what Mexico was dealing with, that they often felt that both of the cultures that were brought together uh, didn't really uh, acknowledge that, and, and in many ways almost ran away from it and made them more, I guess you can say, uh, less committed than if it was simply a, a, a born marriage you know, made of love. It was more like forced together and they had to figure it out. And I think that's what he was saying when he was mentioning about, you know, the the the, the Indian mother abandoning things and the and the Spanish father thrusting things over there. And you know, he's really pretty much saying, without being over negative, because I really don't think he's been very negative when he was saying that. I just think he was being quite factual and emotionally true by saying that, hey, we got two partners in this relationship that we're trying to put together over here, and neither one of them didn't seem like they were really willing. <laughs> and, and, and but now we have to put things together ourselves now we have to figure out what to do next and how we can live with ourselves and what we can uh, present to the future and and of course how we stand in in the world so those are the things that are still left after all that other stuff is you know said and done it, it really makes him to be i feel in many ways an extraordinary uh a cultural critic and and, and even a philosopher to a certain extent because as he's talking about the things of Mexico, he is indeed talking about the things of humanity, the things of human beings, the things of human nature, the very things that we tackle in the human condition. So it makes him, even though he's writing about Mexico, it makes Paz pretty darn universal. I don't know, maybe that's why a few people don't like him. They don't like that he's so universal. But to me, it's just like the, the the Christian who can practice their religion in, I wouldn't say a cautious way, but in a, in a discreet way by practicing more than they're preaching and, and, have an, and have an impact versus someone saying, you know, I didn't hear that guy say Jesus 98 times today, so I, I wonder how Christian they really are. And this is what I think when people try to criticize Paz, what they're saying you know, he didn't mention Mexico 98 times when he wrote this, so how Mexican can he really be? Well, <laughs> my, my, I don't have to be an expert on Mexico or, or Mexican. I really don't. To be able to say that, to me, I mean, Octavio Paz is the quintessential Mexican writer and thinker because he was thinking about the past, he was thinking about the present, with the understanding that if we can start learning more, from each other and even from each Mexican worrying from each other that that would that would secure the future a lot better than the road it could be going on 
and 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 that's what he tried to do everything he can to have a, a more united a Mexican culture. It was something he really deeply believed in, and he was definitely right about. All right, folks, until next time, I want to thank you very much for all your support and, and all your emails. We'll, we'll run over some more of those at, towards the end of the month on that last mailbag show for the uh, for the year. We have some other shows that are coming up over here. Let's uh, go over those really quickly. All right, because I don't, I don't really have them memorized. If I don't have the stuff written down, I, I won't even remember. <laughs> Sorry, that's just the way it is. All right, so the well, next one we're going to be doing here next week, we're going to be doing the female gender in writing. That's going to be terribly interesting, quite important. And I'm really looking forward to that one. I really am. That's going to be a, one of my more favorite episodes to be able to do because there's so much to say and so much to cover. And I, I really like when we can we can do things like that. Then we're going to go back to another classic Spotlight series with John Ashbery, personal hero and favorite. So give me a liking to do that one. Afterwards, we're going to have the unique pleasure of having an interview with uh, Bonfire Lit and uh, on, with the editors. They're going to talk about their magazine, a new magazine that came out, and some of their philosophy about about writing in general, what they're doing over there. I'm hoping that you know this will take off enough that we'll have a few more of these because I'm completely open to doing these type of interviews as well as we do just the individual writing ones. So we'll see what happens. I mean. Maybe it works out and we could do more. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I'm hoping that we can use it as an example once it gets broadcast out there for other magazines to consider wanting to do that and not be so shy about it or not be so timid about it. And, you know, let's, let's, let's come out in the open like everybody else, okay? Let's not be in some artistic closet. Come on out, all right? All right, we're going to have another show, uh, another standalone show called The Mirror and the Window. It's going to be a discussion on self. I'm going to really look forward to that. We're learning about... What the fine line is, is on being self-centered to a certain extent and and what selfishness is. Because guess what? You could be self-centered for a phase of time, meaning an hour or two when you're writing, and then go back to being a, a, an average person again. It doesn't mean you're selfish. You know, it's when you're doing this for weeks at a time that maybe that can be. Maybe that is narcissism. So we're going to talk about all those different shadings and differences and, and see what we could find out about that Maybe we could figure out ways to regulate our own schedule, or our own behavior, our own view of all these things. Maybe we're stuck. We'll, we'll, we'll see. It'll be interesting. And then at the end of the month, we're going to be doing mailbag number six. It's going to have more of an international flavor of emails, including a couple people that were pretty negative about the pause situation. Hopefully, I'll get a few people that'll, that'll be, uh, it'll be positive in there as well so we can have a nice mix-up of it. But if that's what it is, that's what it is, and I have no reading it out. But I really... Love Paz since early on when I first got to his work in the 80s when it started getting more translated into English. And so I, I've been a big I've been a big fan and uh, I'm, I'm happy to be a fan uh, of somebody like Octavio Paz that not only did they they live the life of somebody that wanted to be free and wanted to have a society that was free, but also that kind of gave us a direction as artists and how we could live. And that's really makes him, uh, to my in my heart, the, the most important uh, of writers, you know, out there. When we have people that can do that. All right, folks. Until next time. God bless and good night. Thank you for listening. 
Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.